Welcome to our uh, service this morning. We're going to be in the books of Peter and Jude towards the end of your uh, New Testament there. And we'll continue our uh, conversation about the enemies of the church we saw last time in Galatians. How there are false teachers that will rise up against the name of Christ and against the gospel. And uh, we'll see the same sort of thing in Second Peter and Jude particularly. Let me begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into our study this morning. Father, we are grateful that we can be among Your people and we can study Your Word that You have left for us. We're grateful that You have left us with Your Spirit as a down payment of our salvation. Uh, Sort of a promissory note that we will receive final inheritance from You. Not that we deserve it by any means, but uh, simply based on the grace of Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason that we meet here today because of His death and resurrection that has bought our salvation and has uh, built up within us a desire to serve Him and to give our lives to Him. And so we ask that You would help us as we meet today, particularly in this hour, that we would reflect on our Savior and what He's done and what we ought to do for Him in return. pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, First Peter has been described as a model of a pastoral letter, a letter designed to encourage believers in the face of suffering to live lives in submission to God by pointing them to Christ and, um, and the purpose of His suffering. And also, it's designed to remind them that the time is short until Christ will return. So Peter tells them in chapter 4, verse 13, to the, degree, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So it's a message of hope that we have something to look forward to. But until that time, he says in verse 19 of chapter 4, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So it seems as if Peter is writing this first letter in order to encourage believers who are going through suffering until the time when Christ returns. He wants to remind them that, that they need to fix their hope on that future return and, and that they can endure through this suffering because of that promised return. The author, of course, is of these first two letters, first and second Peter, is Peter, as the title indicates, as well as the letter itself. The first verse reads of chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And uh, some have challenged this claim based on the style of Greek and the differences between the two letters and the fact that Second Peter was one of the last books to, uh, to receive widespread acceptance into the canon. Some would reject this as Peter's, at least the second one, as Peter's letter. Um, but all that being aside, um, I, I take the author as well as 
most people do, most conservative uh, scholars as well, also take Peter to be the writer of both of these letters. Well, let's take a moment to discuss Peter. He's one of the most um, interesting New Testament characters and writers because of his fire and zeal um, and the fact that he went through some pretty humbling experience. He, he was a man who wore his emotions on his sleeve. He often stepped up when it was time to speak. And, and he was the one who, who spoke his mind, in fact, saying some pretty profound, or not profound, but pretty drastic statements, like when he, he told uh, Jesus that he would never die. When Jesus first announced that to them, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Uh, probably something that the other disciples would have been thinking about. How, how could that be? You're, you're the Messiah. You're not going to die. And uh, Peter's the one who actually speaks up and says something. He also had a close relationship with Christ. We know that he went to the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ as well as some other um, personal conversations and even praying uh, at the, the mountain of, uh, there at Gethsemane. Uh, he had a closer relationship with Christ than most of the other disciples. And um, so as you think about him and his life, that will perhaps shed some light on, on what he, and how he writes and so on. For an outline of this first letter to Peter or from Peter, um, you can look at the back. In fact, we're going to follow that outline for our study of this book. And it begins in chapter 1 by talking about the revelation of a living hope. That seems to be Peter's point in this book, the revelation of a living hope. And then he shows how that's played out. In chapter 2, verses 1-12, through 12, um, which it leads to a holy life and then chapter 2, verse 13 through the end of the book, it's characterized by joyful submission. So chapter 1, the revelation of a living hope. This is how Peter's story began. He was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, and in time he came to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Who do people say that I am, Jesus said. And Peter said, well, some say one of the prophets, some say... Um, Elijah, but but who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even still, Peter's life and his service to Christ was characterized by misunderstanding. He didn't fully understand what it meant for Christ to be the Messiah. Peter could not accept the fact that, that Jesus would suffer many things and be killed. And even when Jesus was being arrested, um, you remember Peter comes out with a sword and probably is trying to cut the man's head off, instead only gets his ear. And Jesus says, we don't need to come with swords. Okay, This kingdom is not of, of this world, he would later say to Pilate. If it were, then my people would fight for me. But it's not. Jesus knew He was going to lay His life down. And Peter was thinking, Jesus is going to set up the kingdom now. I need to protect Him. This is why Jesus brought me to this point. And, um, and so he, he uses this sword. But the story of Peter doesn't end there. Um, of course, we remember that he denies Christ three times following that event of uh, cutting off the the, the, um, the soldier's ear. 
and he, he denies Christ three times and is very humbled by that. Um, he, he goes away from that event weeping. And um, Christ, after he rose from the dead, appeared to Peter. And um, I think probably to encourage him, he says to him three times, um, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And and he says, if so, then feed my sheep or my lambs. And I think, um, I think what Jesus was probably doing there was pointing back to the three times that Peter had denied him. And now he's saying, Peter, if you love me, here's how it should show forth in your life. It's not just in, in speech. It's not just in in saying, I will go to the death with you. That's what he said before he denied Christ the three times. I, I will I will die if I have to for your sake. And, God, and Jesus said that's uh, good, but that's not enough. It should show forth in a life that that um, that portrays itself in service. And the result of that was that Peter's life was transformed, and that's exactly the point he makes at the end of chapter 1 leading into um, chapter 2. Verse 22 of First Peter 1 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter had tasted the kindness of the Lord and that is how he wanted his life to be characterized. And so that's why in chapter 2, verses 1-12, through 12, he moves from the revelation of living hope to a holy life. This is how it should play out. And he, he speaks in these verses about practical ways in which the people to whom he's writing and to us and we should ought to live. That's what um, a holy life looks like. And then he moves in chapter two, verse thirteen, till the end of the to the end of the book, he says that the revelation of a living hope that's characterized by a holy life looks like Joyful submission. Joyful submission. And you see that um, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13. The submission he, f- he describes is the submission that he himself learned and that he himself experienced. First, he learned submission to Christ and His revelation. Rather than trying to reshape Christ to fit Peter's mold. In other words, what Peter thought was the ideal for how Christ ought to uh, to live in his own expectations. He submitted himself to Christ and His revelation. This was something that happens in a maturing process. Something that, that takes place over time. And um, so he recognized that Christ was the ultimate authority. And... Um, it was this man, of course, who folded in the face of ridicule and persecution, but later would actually die for the sake of Christ and for His work. 
so that's the basic outline of the book. Um, the date um, in chapter five, thirteen, verse thirteen, he makes reference to being in Babylon, which, if we take it in the same sense as in Revelation, um, then it's referring to the city of Rome. And in that same verse, he refers to Mark, but not to Paul. And we know that Paul was with Mark in Rome and that he was released from his Roman imprisonment in AD 62. So if that were the case, and Peter died probably in AD 65, then um, he probably wrote 1 Peter around AD 63. And this was before Nero's persecution really begins. Remember, Nero was a tyrant of a leader and did much damage to the cause of Christ and killing Christians, um, I guess from an earthly perspective, for the sake of, of uh, those who died. But obviously others were encouraged by that and even strengthened in their faith to do more. The audience and recipients, uh, Peter tells us who they are in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So, at the end of verse 1, he says, who are chosen. So, he's speaking to whom? Believers, right? So, he's speaking to believers in these cities. Probably, uh, we could just generalize it by saying this region. And um, so, probably the... the Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Um, and this was probably an area that Peter had spent time in and evangelizing some believers and so now wanted to follow up on them. It makes sense to, to want to follow up on them and go back and make sure that, that they are following Christ and continuing in the faith. Um, so, so Peter works to um, to strengthen these believers despite their persecution that they may may have been facing, and Peter very well knew what that was like for himself. Any questions so far on First Peter, or really we talked more about the life of Peter? All right, there's four major themes that we're going to look at in First Peter. Um, Peter wrote this letter to encourage Christians who were faced with some harassment and persecution. And they were probably even facing some physical and bodily persecution as a result of, of uh, their faith. And so Peter writes them to stand firm. To stand firm in their faith. Um, now, throughout the empire, Roman temples were set up for the people to worship the emperor. And those who refused to join in these celebration were looked at with suspicion. Okay, It would be similar to King Nebuchadnezzar setting up his idol. That everyone had to bow down. And if you didn't, then you showed your disloyalty to the state or to the country. Your, um, your, your lack of patriotism. And so, for the, the people here in Asia Minor, they're, they're being forced to worship this emperor. And for those who did not do it, they were looked down upon as unpatriotic and disloyal. And so, uh, that's why I say there was probably some, 
significant persecution going on with these believers. And uh, in addition to a public worship of this emperor, even private families in their neighborhoods would typically hold parties and celebration in the local temple. And so now all of a sudden, these young Christians were no longer participating in these things because they had been changed by the power of the Spirit. And, uh, and now they were being pegged as haters of, of the state or people who even hated their own families because they were going against what their families had always done or at least had done uh, recently. And on top of that, now they're operating under a different level of morality. And they rejected their former way of life and, um, and Peter described their former way of life as living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So imagine what that would have been like to go from there to not doing those things. Imagine the friends that are lost as a result of, of having been changed. You know, I can't do those things anymore. Or, or as Pastor Brown put it on Wednesday, because I have a higher goal, I don't want to do those things anymore. The positive holiness that he talked about. The result was that people thought them strange and according to chapter 4, they began to heap abuse on them. And even worse, according to chapter 2, verse 20, they were experiencing physical suffering. And so Peter writes to say, how, do, how should Christians respond in these circumstances? What should be our attitude to undeserved suffering? How do we cope with this alienation from our society? And to answer that, he, he focuses on four main themes. Number one, consider Jesus Christ both as a Savior and as an example. Consider Jesus Christ both as a Savior as an, and as an example. First, Peter turns these young Christians' attention from themselves to Christ and tells them to consider what Jesus has done in the Gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. This is how he begins his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter takes their attention. And instead of having them focus on their circumstances, he's going to talk about those at some point, but, but instead of that, he, he focuses them on the future. Well, first on the past. Look at what Christ did for us. Blessed be the God and Father who according to His mercy has caused us to be born again, verse 3. And then verse 4 and 5, now, He has also protected you for that future hope that you have. Or hope is probably better better understood as confidence, that future confidence you have in what Christ will do for you. So he takes their attention off of their present circumstances and on to Christ. What he has done and what he will do. And, um, and this really summarizes, uh, I guess you could say, the entire book. Because it, it's Peter getting their attention on to Christ. Well, how is that going to benefit um, 
benefit them? Well, if if they focus on themselves, then obviously then and their own circumstances, then they're they're going to be disappointed, they're going to be frustrated. Um, it, it's like a runner in a marathon who's thinking about all of his aches and pains, and he's still got 20 miles to go. Okay, you got to focus on the final goal. Can't focus on what's what's around you. Can't focus on. Uh, you know, the the difficult circumstances that you're experiencing now or the uphill climb that you're working through or the uh, the shin splints that you feel are developing to focus on the future goal. Well, why can we respond to suffering in this life with joy? How, how can we possibly focus on Christ and submit ourselves even despite ridicule and suffering and alienation? Peter says is because we have been reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That puts everything in perspective. When we recognize what we deserve, what God had every right to do to us because of our sin, and then we recognize what Christ did to us instead, then that puts things into perspective. We're no longer commiserating about our our circumstances and how bad and awful things are for us, and they may be bad and awful, but we're we're reflecting on the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And because of that perspective and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us that we should therefore live as Christ lived. So Christ becomes, I said two things, our Savior and our example. Okay, first of all, our Savior. He cannot be our example unless He's our Savior. Okay, so some people would argue that Jesus merely went to the cross as an example for us, that His death really didn't atone for anything, but rather He just showed us how we should give our lives for others. But, but that view is nonsense. Okay, in order for Him to be an example for us, He has to have been our Savior because otherwise we're still estranged from God. And, and following an example of, of Christ would do us no good unless we could be perfect, which we cannot. Um, so we have a hope in the reconciliation that comes through Christ. So here's how we respond to trials, to testing, to um, accusations and alienation we focus on Christ. Focus on Him as our Savior and as our example, as our future hope. And then secondly, we need to, Peter tells us, remember that the time is short. He encourages these suffering Christians to consider Christ, but he also encourages them to remember that the time of their suffering is short. Now, that doesn't seem right when you're going through suffering, does it? It doesn't feel short. It feels as if it will never end. And um, as we've already noticed in chapter 1, verse 5, Peter reminds them that the day of their salvation is near. It's ready to be revealed. But he goes on to say in verse 6 that these trials, which are very real, must also be endured for a little while. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, You have been distressed by various trials, even if you even if only for this little while. In chapter four, verse seven, Peter reminds them that that the end of all things is near. Chapter five, verse ten, he says, The God of grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so Peter causes them to focus on the, the nearness of the end, the nearness of Christ's return. So here's how you you endure the suffering that you're experiencing. Put your focus on Christ and recognize that the time is short. Remember that the time is short. And and if you notice in these verses, the emphasis that Peter place, places here is on God's power. That while we're suffering, God's power shields us. It is the power that sustains us. And finally, it will bring our suffering to an end. And so the temptation for us when we suffer, when we receive abuse, is to strike back and to take matters into our own hands. But Peter says, no, be patient. Your suffering, if you're suffering for the sake of good, will not be without end. We can depend on God's power and entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. Alright, so... There's two ways in which we can uh, work through our suffering. Any questions on on those or anything we've talked about up to this point before we get to these next two? Yes, Sandra. Yeah, sometimes the the um, the best view that people will have of Christ is when believers are walking through the darkest times of their life, because unbelievers don't suffer well. Okay, and I'm not trying to demean them. They simply don't have the power of the Spirit. Um, they don't have the strength that comes from the Word of God. They don't have the promises. Uh, they they have. Um, they have expectations. They may even have some hopes of what may happen in the future. But ultimately, they don't have the confidence that believers can have. And when believers walk through trials with joy, which is what Peter is talking about, when believers do that, then that says something a lot to a dying world who can't understand how that would be possible. And so that's a good point. Number three, third way to work through this suffering understand it rightly is remember that this world is not our home. Peter reminds them to be patient knowing that the time is short, but he also reminds them to be hopeful for this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven and we have both a Father and an inheritance waiting there for us. There are lots of places we could look, but turn to chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
For you were you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Um, in chapter 1, verse 4, we already read it, but the, it talks about the inheritance that can never perish, that, that never spoils, that's never taken away, never fades away. It's kept in heaven for you. So you, this world is not your home if you're a believer. You're, your Father is in heaven waiting for you with your inheritance. And the good news of the Gospel is that we have been made citizens of heaven members of God's royal family. That's what it says in verse 9. And that our treasure is in Christ Himself. Um, and so that means that not only have we been saved individually, but we've, all, we've also been saved into a family, into a chosen group. It's not a, a private, intimate experience with God where we go into some secluded room with Him and, and have conversation with Him for the rest of eternity. It is a corporate experience. We get a little bit of a taste of that in the, the church of Jesus Christ today. And um, so right now, that means that, that we are to be part of God's people. We are to be loving them. Loving those that He loves. Binding our lives together through fellowship and um, unity around the Gospel. Not always easy. Uh, we don't always get to choose who our brothers and sisters are. In fact, we never do. The same thing is true with the church. But we love them and we work together with them because we recognize that Christ has saved them as He has us. Finally, that leads to joyful submission, which we touched on earlier. Um, the result of this new perspective. Okay, So, if we focus on Christ... Remember that the time is short. Remember that this world is not our home. And then, as a result, practically that means we should joyfully submit in our relationships because of the hope that we have in, the, in God and the Gospel. We can submit to earthly authorities. Wives can submit to their husbands. And husbands can sacrificially love their wives. We can submit to the leaders that God has placed over us. It's because or I should say, is it because that, that in the end all these leaders are worthy of our trust and submission? Okay, ladies, don't look to your husband right now. They may not be. But according to Peter, we can submit to these authorities because not because they're always trustworthy or worthy of our submission, but because God is. So in chapter 2, we can submit to uh, earthly authorities as Christ did because we are entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. And in chapter 3, wives can submit to husbands because they put their hope in God, chapter 3, verse 5. And we can submit to one another because ultimately our authority is in submission to Christ. Chapter 5, we can submit to the leaders in the church because the chief shepherd is coming back and will hold them to account. So, our bosses, our our um, wives or husbands, okay, the the leaders of the church may not be worthy of your respect, your your um, submission, 
but we can submit to those people because we are submitting to Christ. We recognize that that God is the one who holds them in that authority and will ultimately hold them accountable for that authority. And as a result, we can we can submit. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 helps sum it up for us. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but the will of God. As Christians, we should joyfully submit to God. And when we're asked to give an answer for our hope, then we should have joyful submission in the face of suffering. And the only way that we can do that is if we are, we have our gaze fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ, what He has done for us. Joyful submission sounds like an oxymoron, but for believers in Jesus Christ, it is not. It is the glad, uh, the, the glad response of our hearts because of what God has done for us. Any cha- questions on First uh, Peter? We, uh, I'm going to cover these last two letters, but they're going to be a lot quicker. Second Peter and Jude. Jude, they cover a lot of the same top- topics. In fact, all right, Second Peter and Jude. So, they had to fear physical persecution. Um, many believers around the world do the same. In fact, there are still many people who are being martyred for the faith. But Peter goes on in his second letter, along with Jude, uh, they, he also speaks about the false teachers who would come in and try to destroy the gospel. And so, that's what these two letters are speaking of. The, these enemies of the church. Well, we've already considered the authorship and background of Peter's letter. The only thing I need to add is that uh, 2 Peter was written after 1 Peter, uh, surprisingly enough. And probably, so 1 Peter was written in AD 63 and Peter died in AD 65 before Nero's persecution uh, came on the scene. Then, Then it was probably between that time, maybe AD 64 or even later on in AD 63. But as for Jude, um, the author refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James in Jude chapter 1, verse 1. And so most would, would take this to mean that, that this is James the brother or the half-brother of Christ. And so that means that Jude is as well. Jude seems to be very knowledgeable about current uh, Jewish teachings. And um, so there's no way to be certain about the date, but the similarity in language with Second Peter seems to indicate that it was probably written around the same time. Perhaps they, um, they spoke often with each other, Peter and Jude, or perhaps Jude read Peter's letter. Um, it's hard to say, but it was probably written in the mid-60s. As for the main themes in these two books, um, you can see from the outline that both Second Peter and Jude are concerned to warn young believers about the danger of false teachers. And so, how do we respond to these enemies of the church? Um, interestingly, uh, neither Peter nor Jude really say a whole lot about what they are teaching. Um, they don't write a whole point-by-point argument against their heresy, so... 
All right, here's where they're attacking us, and here's here's how we defend ourselves and attack them back. He doesn't give a point by point um, instruction on how to overcome this specific heresy. He's more general. Both of these men are more general in uh, what they have to say. But what we do know is that there there are some fruits that come as a result of their error. That these heretics, um, you, you can see whether or not they're true believers based on the way that they live. And that hasn't changed, by the way, today. Okay, So when you have these people who are preaching uh, a certain false gospel, and based on your understanding of the Scriptures, you know it's false, but you're having a hard time uh, uh, defending or, or I guess opposing it then uh, one of the best ways to see if, if they believe their gospel is to see what their lives are like how they live if they're presenting themselves as godly and then living a totally different way then that says something about their teaching now that can happen even if a person is speaking the truth I think you understand that but my point is is that false teachers will show themselves by by their lives. So notice second Peter chapter two verse thirteen. Second Peter chapter two verse thirteen well let's start in verse twelve. But these he calls them uh dogs and, and uh, some other degrading names, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, uh, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery. See, notice their lifestyle doesn't match this godly message that they're trying to proclaim having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. And he goes on and says some more nice things about them. <laughs> Jude describes them in chapter 1, verse 8. In the very same way, I'll just read this for you, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. You see, true gospel teaching does not lead to a license to sin and immorality. So, if the product of false teaching is sin and immorality, then, then that says, or I should say, if the product of that teaching, whatever teaching it is, is sin and immorality, then that says something about that person's teaching. Peter says at the beginning of his letter, since you experienced the power of God in the gospel, here's how you ought to live. That's what he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through that The fruit of godly teaching or right teaching is godly living. That it should play itself out in lives that are changed. Now, obviously, there's a lot of variables that I'm skipping over here. There is the variable of prayer that is demanded for growth. There is the variable of the Holy Spirit bringing His special presence upon those who are hearing this message. But you understand that, that generally speaking, true teaching leads to godly living, both in the life of the teacher and in the life of the students or the, the hearers. 
turn our attention to the certainty of judgment in these two books, Second Peter and Jude. Peter and Jude both point out the evil that um, these enemies of the church produce, but they also remind their readers that the outcome of such lives is certain judgment. Now, apparently these false teachers were scoffing at the idea that God would ever hold them to account. We can live however we want. See, it's right thinking that matters. Now, right thinking does matter. Don't get me wrong. But right living also matters. And what they were saying is, we can live however we want and God will not hold us to account because God is a merciful God. Okay, This goes back to what we were talking about in our study of Genesis, how many false teachers don't come out and deny the Gospel altogether. They don't come out and say, Christ didn't die and didn't rise from the dead. Instead, they minimize God's judgment like the very first temptation. When Satan came to Eve and said, did God really say? And and she says, well, this is what he said. And he says, you shall not surely die. Here's what these false teachers are saying. You can live and we can live however we please and we will not surely die spiritually. God won't judge us. They highlight His mercy to the exclusion of His judgment. And that's a problem. Okay, God is merciful, but we can't understand God's mercy rightly unless we understand that He is a judging, wrathful God. And so, to show the folly of this think- thinking, Peter and Jude review the many think- ways in which God has executed His judgment in the past. Okay? They go through lists against the fallen angels. God has judged those who, has, who have opposed Him. Did not God send those, those evil angels down? against the people of Noah's day. Uh, uh, A lesson that we're going to begin looking at tonight in the evening service. That God brought worldwide catastrophic judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah and against Egypt. You can read about this in 2 Peter 2, 4-10. 2 Peter 2, 4-10. Chapter 3, verses 3-7. And then Jude 1, 5-7. If God judged those people, and He did, then you can be sure that He will judge you if you are not in Christ. If, you, if your life doesn't produce the fruit that, that should be producing, that it should be producing um, based on the relationship that you say that you have in Christ. And so both Peter and Jude draw a conclusion that this is the way God treated those who rebelled against Him. And so that every person should recognize that that He will do the same to those who oppose Him. God's not changed. God still judges sin. And that judgment is certain. Now, it may be delayed. It may not be instantaneous. It wasn't instantaneous for any of those other people. They all had opportunity to repent. So, God's judgment may be delayed, but what we need to understand is that it will certainly come. And so, we better be prepared. And we do that by holding on to the truth as it's been revealed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, how do we respond to the enemies of the church? Perhaps the best way to sum it up is to remember that what Christ has done in the Gospel 
that we need to hold on to Christ as He is holding on to us. And the best way that I think I can explain that is by simply reading the end of Jude. The last two verses in the book of Jude read like this. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In verse 21, Jude had said, Keep yourselves in the love of God. In verse 24, he says, Now him to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So we keep ourselves in the love of God as Christ keeps us. In fact, the only way we can keep ourselves in the love of God is if Christ keeps us. So it's not as if we have to um, worry about um, our own strength and that thing, we, that sort of thing. We we put our focus and our our leaning onto Christ and what He has done, and um, and when we do, our lives will be changed as a result. Any questions or comments on First, Second Peter, and Jude? Yes, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Kind of like saying he's undefiled and therefore sin or anything wicked or impure cannot come anywhere near him. Right. Yeah, and um, and the recognition that we all deserve that because of our sin. If God is holy and He is, then He judges sin just as He has in the past. He will do it in the future. And uh, yeah, that's an excellent point way to point that out, Bill. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how how much the scripture writers go back to the Old Testament to support what they're saying in the New Testament. You know, you think you kind of set all those things aside, but no, look how God acted in the Old Testament to these wicked people and don't be surprised when he does that again. The great news, though, is that God is delaying His judgment and He has delayed His judgment for us. And thank God that He did because we would all be condemned if it were, if it were, uh, if it were not for the grace of Jesus Christ. Alright, next week is our last week for uh, the New Testament. Then we'll move on to our study of church history. So uh, I'd encourage you to be here. We'll look at the Thessalonians and Revelation Um, We'll do that in a short period of time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we do admit that there are many times when we get our eyes off of Him and onto our circumstances, onto the people around us, comparing ourselves to other people who deserve more suffering than we do and so on. But but help us, Lord, to, to fix our eyes on Christ. Help us to remember that our time is short and that this world is not our home. And as a result, may we joyfully submit ourselves to You that our lives would be changed as a result of what we know. Thank You for our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.